welcome to Wireless Future. Um, my name is Eric Larsson and I'm here as always with my colleague Emil Björnsson. Hello Emil, how are you today? I'm doing fine, how are you? I'm good, thank you. So I realize this is uh, episode 22, is that correct? I think so. You think so? Yes, I think so. So we've been doing this for like, I think it's more than a year now, huh? isn't yeah. it? <laughs> wow, that's, Second uh, that's season, amazing indeed. <laughs> double two in the number of episodes as well. Oh yes, it is indeed. Um, all right, so um, the uh, discussion that we'll be having today is going to center around some aspects of antennas and antenna arrays, and specifically the notion of being in the near field versus being in the far field of an antenna and of an antenna array. And this is a rather, say, technical and intricate topic with um, a lot of terminology indeed, and uh, which also requires a lot of rigor. Um, when really, I mean, or requires, put it this way, requires a lot of hard work to do rigorously <laughs> from the first principles in in electromagnetics. Hmm. Um, so perhaps we could start on the, um, say, question of terminology here. Um, what is the near field, really, of an antenna? So this is an area that I have spent quite some time on thinking about in the past few years as well, because just as you're saying, it is an intricate topic to go into detail in, and therefore most textbooks are also uh, a bit uh, glossing over uh, the details uh, because they probably didn't want to focus on those things, but then there are uh, still reasons to consider it. And now people are also in communications considering the near field uh, and for that reason uh, I think it's an important topic for the future so to answer your question what is the near field so when you have an antenna it's essentially an object with uh, a distribution of currents over its surface and that is then creating electromagnetic field that you can measure and you can use uh, yeah, Maxwell's equations to compute the electrical field at different locations but we like to make simplifications to figure out how we can describe it in a more convenient way at different distances. And very close to the antenna, you have the reactive near field. In this case, you can both measure radio waves that are on the way to travel far away. And you can measure sort of an electric field that is just around the antenna or magnetic field as well. So you can think about as the electric field that is existing around the coil. That one is measurable if you are really near. Then uh, if you go a bit further, you are in the uh, radiative near field. Then this reactive part that only exists around it that doesn't really travel away, they are negligible. Uh, and in the reactive near field, you still have certain properties that if you are measuring the strength of the signal in different angular directions, it varies depending on what the measurement distance is. Uh, of course, it always varies in strength, but the distribution over angles varies. And then if you move further away, then the antenna will look so small from the point where you're measuring so that uh, uh, it's only the angle that depend on, uh, determines the, the distribution of uh, the strength of the electric field over the different um, angles and not the distance. Mm. Yeah, I think it's rather consistent with uh, sorry, <laughs> my understanding as well. Um, is it correct to say? I mean, you know, I mean, you, you could if you have an antenna, right? You could expand the uh, say electric or well the magnetic for that matter. But let's talk about the electric field. Um, 
which is time varying, then obviously you could expand that in in terms of like some of different components, and some mm. components decay inversely proportional to the distance, and some decay faster, right? Like one over first decay, like one over r if r is the distance, and the next decay is like one over r squared, and so forth. So, yeah, is, is it like correct to say that we are in the far field if it is a good approximation to retain only the first term in this expansion, namely the one that goes as one over r, where r is the distance? Um, yes and no. So you, when you are only retaining that first term, then you have left the reactive near field. So these things that only exist around the uh, transmitter can be neglected. But uh, uh, depending then on how large your transmitter is, you will or will not have this kind of thing in between the reactive near field and mm. the far field, which we sometimes call the radiative near field, sometimes the Fresnel region. And uh, this is really, if if the antenna is uh, physically large or um, much larger than the wavelength, then mm. you can see this field variations over angles uh, for mm. a certain number of distances. And there is something called the Fraunhofer distance, which is mm. determining uh, approximately how far you need to be before you can neglect even those effects. Mm. Yeah, so, you know, I, I, I have to admit I had to dig out my college textbook in electromagnetics here uh, to <laughs> feel like well prepared for <laughs> discussing this topic. And uh, it's the Heldon Marion, uh, I believe it's actually a second course on electromagnetics. And uh, it does have a discussion of um, antennas, obviously, and dipoles and linear antennas and also other structures. Um, and it does also discuss the, the Fraunhofer limit that I think you alluded to here. And then it mm-hmm. does say in a footnote that antenna engineers often name this the far field criterion, so referring then to the Fraunhofer limit, uh, often name this the far field criterion and express it as tolerance of R greater than twice the distance over lambda uh, or twice the antenna size over lambda. Many authors do not distinguish carefully among the limits expressed in equation 962, which is, I think, what you're after here with these these two regimes, right? Uh, In particular, there is an ambiguity in the use of the terms far and near. Hmm. In optics and antenna engineering, these words usually refer to the Fraunhofer test, to which we return in chapter 12. But in discussing the field of an oscillating dipole, we use them to refer to the radiation test. So um, I think it's really hard to... um, accurately state these points without using like mathematics and figures but for, for let's say casual listeners the take-home point might be here that you're going to be very careful with terminology and uh, there are well two different regimes that you can be in right when you're like closer far away from an antenna you can be in the reactive uh, near field you can be in the radiative field you can be in the in, in the far field where the Fraunhofer criterion uh, applies and uh, to make matters worse, I think um, the say um, ubiquitous <laughs> use of antenna arrays in modern comm systems and, and radar, obviously for that matter, uh, adds I think on top of this confusion, right? Because some authors mm. use the term far field and near field here to for an array to actually refer to something else, which is not a property of the individual antennas themselves, but rather a property of the antenna geometry. And Mm. I'm not sure whether I coined the term, I don't believe so, but I couldn't, on the other hand, pinpoint where it comes from. But I think when we discussed earlier, I used the term geometric uh, far field when speaking about an array to mean the regime where you can consider the 
um, waves from the individual antennas to be plane waves, right? So now when we have an array, then there is on top of the terminology that we have for the individual antenna elements, there is now going to be also the question of whether the wavefronts from the elements in the array can be seen viewed as planar or not. So viewing the whole array as like a single antenna more or less, right? And then computing mm. the Fraunhofer uh, limit. So maybe you could elaborate on this, Emil. And I mean, and also in a way, I mean, this terms here are like, I think this book here is probably written in the, I don't know, maybe 60s or maybe it's actually more recent, but I think the first edition came out long ago. Um, so, well, yes. 65. Um, so, so these are like <laughs> well-established theory, right? And, and terminology for the time before we were even born. <laughs> um, but, but is it like a, a new aspect or a futuristic aspect now to all of this, now that we build these massive MIMO arrays and so forth? So, yes, there are. And even uh, so, one difference which we will come into is the difference between what is important when you're only studying antennas and what is important when you're studying the communication usage of antennas, where we sort of need to expand the terminology. But also within the antenna community, well, yes, there is rigorous definition, but those have also changed over time what we are considering. So if you read papers from the 50s and 60s, they are describing the world a bit like I did from the beginning with the, the radiative, reactive, the Fresnel region, and then the Fraunhofer region or far field. Uh, but then uh, that was based on the idea that uh, all antennas will be focusing its radiated signals at the point that is far away. And then we are studying what happens at different regions. Then we realize we can also build antennas that are focusing the signals at a close by point. And then uh, some of these uh, zones doesn't exist or you can control whether it exists or not. So there's a lot of, of issues. But as you, so I believe I've even changed their terminologies between far field and near field over time as well in the antenna community. But uh, as you were pointing out, yeah, the, the arrays are getting larger. Uh, so uh, for that reason, it becomes important to go back to these definitions and see uh, when are the approximation that we did in the past still reasonable to do and when does it change? And also, as you were mentioning, these Fraunhofer distances, you take two times the longest distance of the antenna, like the diagonal of it, you square it and divide with the wavelength. And as you make the wavelengths smaller and smaller, you also get a larger Fraunhofer distance, which means that you have a bigger chance of being in something that is not the far field. Mm. And when you say not the far field here, you mean really the far field of the, the combined array and as a radiating structure, right? So referring to the... Mm. Uh, so I, I'm thinking about the aperture in, in total, because if you go back in this 1950s, 60s papers, mm. they are mainly talking about you have an aperture, uh, an antenna of a certain dimension, then there is a, some kind of variations of the currents mm. over that surface, and that mm. generates a radio wave. And then how you would actually create that variations of currents over yeah. the surface, probably with an antenna array, where you divide into discrete elements, but they are more interested in the continuously varying case which might not mm. be possible to build. Mm. Mm. No, no, but that's what I meant. I mean, mm. we, we, we're considering the entire array as the, like, <laughs> radiating the, the, the antenna here. Yeah. Um, so um, is it like, I mean, there seems to be like a bit of a revived interest in um, looking at the electromagnetics and specifically at 
effects here that concern like being in the near field and far field and so forth. And my understanding was that, I mean, this is because we're going down in, in uh, wavelength, right? Up in carrier frequency and building larger and larger arrays. There's this mm-hmm. obviously massive MIMO. There's also this talking about ultra large and extremely large arrays and so forth. So um, what distances are we talking about here, like concretely, um, in um, if we pick like, I don't know, some, some frequency band that is used for communications or foreseen for uh, communications and some distances in meters. Do you have any like insight to um, give on that? Yes. So uh, it depends on what kind of properties we also want to, to measure. But uh, say that you have an array which is, uh, say, um, one meter and you're communicating at the three gigahertz band, then this front of a distance might be yeah, or it's actually not the front of a distance, we can come back to that, but uh, uh, the places where new interesting communication phenomena appears might be like two meters. But then you make your array 10 by 10 meters, and since this distance is pushing with the square, well, then you, you, all, uh, you have 200 meters. And then you go from 3 gigahertz to 30 gigahertz, and then you have two kilometers. So we can have different distances uh, that, that are mattering here. But, but I think what is important to remember is that these definitions for far field and near field from in the electromagnetic or in the antenna community, it's only a concept that can be measured from a transmitter. You are measuring at different distances and you see what kind of approximation you can do about how the wave looks like. But from a communication perspective, we want to have both a transmitter and a receiver. And since the definition is sort of describing how does the field look like at a particular point? then it's natural that at that point we put a small receiver. And then we so look at, okay, we have a big transmitter, we have a small receiver, how does it depend, uh, the channel depend on how we move around the receiver? And then we have the reciprocity that says that the channel should be the same in both directions. So then we can swap the order and say we have a small transmitter, we have a large receiver, and then the same phenomena should appear somehow. Mm-hmm. But in that case, uh, which doesn't really make sense from an antenna perspective because we don't define things like that. But from a communication perspective, it makes good sense. And then what really happens is that over this large receiver antenna, you will be able to see wavefronts that are spherical. Of course, waves are always spherical, but if you have a small receiver at the large distance, we can approximate that almost, almost being a flat uh, wave that's coming in, but if it's large enough, you can see the curvature and you can potentially also see variations over the amplitude over this antenna. Mm-hmm. So, but do we really have to worry about all of this? I mean, so suppose we have an antenna array, right? No matter it's used for transmission or reception. Um, mm-hmm. And then we're communicating with, with, a, with a mobile, say, out there. And as long as the mobile is in the far field of each individual antenna in the array uh isn't it that like well we can model to reasonable degree of accuracy the channel between the mobile and any of the antennas in the array as a as a a linear time invariant or at least a linear system and then we Mm -hmm. can apply the usual stuff i mean using reciprocity preferably to estimate this i mean the impulse response of the system and then um transmitting waves using Carnegie beamforming, for example, just add up constructively, right? I mean, this is the basis of how modern MIMO works. And 
whether or not his mobile is in the far field of the array doesn't make a difference in any respect at all. I mean, well, the story is a little different, I suppose, if you were to like estimate or use the notion of angle of arrival or uh, even use the array for positioning, I'm not sure. But if we just talk about like communication using reciprocity-based MIMO, I don't think it matters if you are in the um, near field or far field of the array, as long as you're not in the near field of an individual antenna, because then all sorts of odd things start to happen, right, with coupling and so forth. Um, is that a correct understanding, you think, or is there something else here that we ought to think about? So as long as you have protocols that are using reciprocity-based beamforming, you just estimate the channels as it is, and then it will work out for a single communication link. You don't really need to care so much about what happens. But there are other reasons, as you were alluding to, uh, in many cases, people like to use geometrical models. And mm. uh, when you we talked in the previous episode about coverage without beamforming, and then we uh, a common way there is you want to send different angular beams in different directions. And those angular beams are only appearing when you are in the far field. And closer than that, the beam haven't really started yet. So one can say that approximately at this Fraunhofer distance divided by 10, this is when the beam starts to appear. Then it's like three decibels or mm. half the strength that it would have further away. Mm. And uh, yeah, well, that, that, yeah. That, that, that's actually a good point. I mean, this whole notion of beam forming, right? Where you, you know, like you see in, in the papers and even in, in books, I guess, with, um, <laughs> you know, some colorful like beams that point into different directions. Then very often that's a misrepresentation of what's actually going on. And as you said, you have to be very far away from the array to actually see these beams. And how far away they have to be can be expressed in terms of this Fraunhofer limit or distance. Uh, where you plug in the array dimensions then rather than the dimensions of in individual antenna elements, right? Mm. But now this whole notion of being in the far field or near field of the array uh, is only important if you want to do like geometric models and talk about beam formings, talk, talk about like angle of arrival and so forth. If you just do the like canonical multi-user MIMO precoding like we do in like massive MIMO, then there's really nothing to be concerned about here, uh, I think. But of course, as you said, I mean, some folks like to use geometrical models for different reasons. Part I think locally, say, positioning is one, right, where you want to estimate, like, the direction to hmm. the mobile from from um, your access point and so forth. So, But there are some other aspects that uh, are still of interest. So if you then are applying this reciprocity-based beamforming to someone who is much closer than this Fraunhofer distance. How will the signal look like if you start to measure it around in space at different mm. locations? Well, you will create something that you we could call it a beam. Uh, mm. Locally, around the receiver, there will be a stronger signal. It uh, will have mm. a, a beam width uh, that uh, is spanning perpendicular to the direction where the signal is going. And there will be a and this is the interesting thing, a finite depth of the beam. Usually it sort of starts at certain distance and then you can measure the beam until infinity. Uh, but uh, just as when you're focusing a camera at something that is close by, it gets blurry behind it. The same thing is happening mm. when you're focusing the signal. You, you get a, a finite depth around the receiver where you get the strong signals. So it becomes a bit more like a lens. You 
you're focusing the signal as a ball or something around the the receiver and i mm. think this is important for several reasons one is that you are uh, this says something different about how you could uh, multiplex users even in line of sight scenarios it uh, usually mm. it's like okay in every angular direction we can serve one user and if they are overlapping an angle too much well then we can serve it but now they can also be in different distances uh, yes. uh, but in the same angle and it will still mm. work out oh, that is absolutely true i mean you know again and it refers to this uh, notion or, or rather the misconceptions around the notion of what a beam is right i mm. mean uh, I maintain that it's in many cases grossly misleading to think of beams the way they are depicted in lots of papers and books. I mean, we're not yeah. <laughs> some pointing in a given direction like this. To start with, like you said earlier, you have to be um, quite far away. I mean, in, on the order of the Fraunhofer distance corresponding to your array, you have to be that far away from the from the array to actually see anything that resembles uh, a beam. Um, yeah. So uh, I can point out one more thing that is also of relevance, and that has to do, of course, with channel modeling. Uh, that uh, we don't need to care about the channel model when we do reciprocity-based beamforming, but when mm. you are in the near field uh, of the array, so to say, or the radiative near field, then different antennas uh, will see a different amplitude of the signal, even in a line of sight scenarios. Not mm. due to fading, just because you have. Uh, so large variations in the distances that you, you can measure this amplitude variations. And that mm. will require you, particularly when you're very close, to uh, model the uh, antenna uh, or the, the, the channels uh, in a different manner. And it could also be that uh, now the array is physically large, which means that the smaller object can block part of it. Sometimes we call this non-stationary, uh, mm. spatially stationary channels where you, some parts of it is blocked, but not other parts of it, for example. Mm. Now, that's a good point indeed. I mean, that somebody, say, rather simplistic channel models that lots of papers or <laughs> academic papers are using, right? With independent Rayleigh fading, correlated Rayleigh fading with clusters and so forth. These break down once mm. you uh, are in the, um, well, I, I like to call it the geometric near field of the array, but I'm sure it's like an established really terminology. You said the, the you just said near field, I think, but you really meant the near field of the array, right? Yeah. Um, so, but other than that, I mean, is there anything else that we will like either keep in mind or that we would that would prompt like a redesign of anything that we know or any like signal processing algorithms or anything based on understanding better the electromagnetics you think if you rely on uh, geometry then you need to redesign things if you uh, have channel models uh, if you are used to using very simplified things like Rayleigh fading or uh, line of sight mm. scenarios then you need to consider well uh, in the line of sight scenario now things will also depend on distance in the Rayleigh fading scenario mm. uh, yeah since the, the geometry is different you will have a correlated type of fading which is factoring mm. distances and geometry and things like that as well mm -hmm. yeah it easily becomes complicated here right so yeah. um, but is there really a reason to rely much on geometry i mean i understand obviously that if you're in like free space and you have some antenna array of any arbitrary complicated shape and uh, elements that could be anything more or less i mean in principle you could use numerical methods to compute the the em field at any point and you could optimize your beamformer and so forth for that right hmm. um, and you could call that geometry because it's all based on like starting off from geometric 
model in three dimensions or four actually with time then but then in solving like Maxwell's equations or approximations to Maxwell's equations but in reality we're always going to have like reflections um, hmm. I mean there'll be to start with there'll be a ground reflection right and then there'll be scattering and there'll be all sorts of objects and these can't be modeled very well using geometry I mean I think that's one of the things that we have like realized in the <laughs> in, in, in the comms theory community in the last 30 years that it's very difficult. I mean, even, you know, you have something you think is line of sight, but you still have like some reflecting paths and multipaths and all sorts of things going on in your propagation environment. So the question is really, why would you want to rely on geometry to start with? I mean, if you do like reciprocity-based beamforming, there's no point in, in fact, knowing something about the geometry doesn't really help much at all. And if you insist on like beam forming in, in in the sense of shooting power into different directions, I think it's really uh, it's probably the wrong way to go. I mean, it might be better than to use some kind of maybe a machine learning algorithm that can discover what the environment looks like and then like infer implicitly how you know <laughs> received field or or observed field relates to transmitted waves and so on. Or do you do you have a view on that? I definitely agree with you that from a communication system design, we want to utilize as little about the geometry as possible because uh, there's always the danger that we're then adding a prior to our design that doesn't really hold. (laughs) Uh, From a localization perspective, as you was mentioning, then uh, we are used to really utilize strong geometrical models to to estimate angles and things like Mm -hmm. that. And and there... uh, yeah, since usually localization works the best in line of sight scenarios, it could be a chance that it can be useful uh, to, mm. to do it there. But it definitely is a challenge for a particular reason that you're mentioning. And why I have I spent several years trying to learn these things better now? Well, I think what I'm after is to understand more of the fundamental limits. So it one thing that we like to say uh, in massive memory is that as you add more antennas, you are increasing your signal proportional uh, signal power that you receive proportional with the number of antennas, and mm. eventually that trend needs to break down when the array becomes oh, yeah. very large. And I wanted to understand how precisely that happened, and that is one of the things I've been analyzing. So, so how large is large, right? I mean, what does infinity mean here? Like, obviously, when you think of like a uniform array or whatever shape array, and you just grow it bigger and bigger, then it's like with yeah. we just apply the textbook MIMO formulas. It's like the received signal to noise ratio would grow to infinity, right? Which is obviously makes yeah. no sense. And then the question is, how large can the array become um, before like that argument breaking down, which is going to relate to how far do we need to be away from the array to stay in the um, array far field or geometric far field and, and, and mm. perhaps and so forth yeah but, uh, but also they, I mean relating mm. yeah there I have a concrete answer actually so when so what is the answer <laughs> so when the distance to the array is shorter than twice the longer side of it then uh, yeah. th- you see that you need to measure the uh, the channel gain or array gain in a different mm. manner it starts to taper off because of three things the di- you see the different angles from different uh, this different elements in the array from mm. different angles, which is sort of reduced in their effective size. The polarization of the wave will interact differently with the antennas. And the mm. third thing is just that you have different distances, so that creates different mm. amplitude losses over the, there. Uh, 
Uh, right, and these three things all happen approximately at the same point or, yeah, or distance. Uh, they might kick in at different distances. It's hard to separate them exactly, but um, yeah. uh, I think the polarization, for example, happens much closer by. But uh, yeah, at twice the mm. longer side of it, that is when you should start to expect different array gains. While between that one and up to this Fraunhofer distance, you mm. should just be careful with using geometrical models. But as long as you do your beamforming correctly, you will fa- get the array gains that you want to. Mm, 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 mm. Yeah. Um, also, I mean, relating back to your po- uh, point about positioning here, it's certainly true that you can do positioning based on geometry, right? Like estimating mm. angles and so forth. But lots of methods are also just based on fingerprinting. So you, yeah. you estimate the channel impulse response and then you match it with a database, which could be like an artificial neural network or something, I suppose. It's most modern thing there to do. Um, in which case you don't need assumptions on the geometry. But certainly if the if, you, if the geometry is accurately known, then you could of course exploit that knowledge. So mm. yeah, um, okay. Um, so another thing here that comes to mind, because we spoke now of a little bit about individual antennas, right? And we said that there is the reactive area or reactive near field, and there is the radiative field, and there is the, the um, um, far field um, the, the, um, when you're beyond the Fraunhofer uh, limit. Uh, so, uh, and then we talked about the race, and so that well, for a race there is also a uh, Fraun- corresponding Fraunhofer <laughs> or, or far field um, distance mm. associated with the array itself, right? I mean, treating the array as well just a radiating aperture. Um, but now talking about like near field effects, there's another thing that comes to mind here, I think, and that is mutual coupling, because mm. the, the difficulty here is that if you have like more than a single antenna, so you have two antennas and you put them close to one another, then they start to interact, right? And um, this is a rather toxic thing, which is quite well understood in the um, electromagnetics uh, literature, but unfortunately often ignored in uh, many COM theory papers, say. Mm. And I guess it's been one of my stick courses, but you know, if you build a, a an antenna array and you, you keep your antennas at least half a wavelength apart, then very often you can, or typically you can ignore coupling effects. Um, if you push them closer, then you very quickly reach a regime where coupling becomes the dominant phenomenon and where almost yeah. everything you have said becomes, you know, wrong or or uh, inaccurate. And this is true even if you just play around with like point sources, right? I mean, think of a scalar field and you put point sources along a, uh, a, a line, so like a linear array of, of point sources, and you put them um, at half a wavelength apart, then um, and, and they generate, each one of them generates a field, which could be like a pressure field, let's say, in a scalar field then. And um, then you put a sphere around the whole thing and you integrate the power density of the, the pressure field around that sphere. Then you'll get the this, this sum of the squares of the input power to each one of the sources. Um, but um, once you push them closer <laughs> than half a wavelength apart, even that breaks apart. So. Um, this is a rather complicated thing, which I think is um, in the unfortunately in the com theory literature sometimes mistreated, and it's not hard to find papers mm. and arguments that build upon like assumptions. Okay, let's push the antennas closer than half a wavelength, and then pretend that you know what we call power 
in the information theory and signal processing, which is like the norm squared of a signal vector or something like that, that what we call power actually has anything to do with the physically radiated power, which it, mm. well, it does, but it, there's a, there's, it's not an equality. I mean, they aren't equal, right? Um, so is there something here that we should take home, you think, in addition to what I already said? or um, Because we got to keep this in mind, right? When yeah. we speak near field, we also speak uh, coupling, <laughs> I think. Exactly. So if you go back to the kind of papers that were published in the 1950s and 1960s, where people were looking at uh, apertures with uh, arbitrary continuous variations of the currents and from that one you can compute what kind of radiated fields you are getting uh, and of course what you have in the near field as well and uh, I think that kind of theory is taking all kinds of effects into account uh, the question is rather than uh, how do you uh, build something that can uh, generate that kind of current mm. variations over the aperture in reality and then we start to divide it up into small elements because oh uh, yeah we, we know it integral can be discretized into summations and mm. then every term should be independent right but and then the danger comes that no the different antennas mm. are not independent of each other so if we have are designing our system to generate a certain, say, current in one antenna in separation, and then you put them all together, you get a different current distribution over the array. So, uh, so this is really one of the engineering issues that comes between the antenna domain and the communication domain. And 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 yes, uh, I think that what the results in communications in terms of performance. Mm. is probably achievable, but maybe not using the models or the type of antenna arrays that are used uh, as assumptions in the communication area. Mm, mm. Yeah, again, I mean, lots of things happen, right? When you when, when you take coupling into consideration, the most important thing is that the uh, some of the signal squares, which we call power in, mm. let's say, applied information and com theory literature, is not any longer equal to the actual radiated power from the from the antenna so i think um, you know <laughs> mm. a safe place for com theory papers that put antennas closer than half a wavelength together without rigorously considering or, or modeling the electromagnetics i think is probably the trash bin uh, do you agree or you think there is still something like <laughs> in here <laughs> I, i'm not entirely sure to what to extent the result are still indicative of the the right kind of result and in which mm. situations but i think definitely it is an area of concern and i think this is one of the reasons why i am going back into this area and try to find a stronger link between the antenna community and the communication models that we are using to uh, to get rid of these uh, kind of effects mm. and yeah. yeah but you know the thing is that these effects are so strong that or so large, right? I, some time ago, I, I also spent some time trying to understand better, even for, with scalar field and point sources, what happens when you push them closer than half a wavelength, right? And then hmm. co- even just computing the, the impedance matrix and, and, and the, the radiated power, to do that, w- once I pushed the antennas closer, than I think it was like 0.4 lambda together, I had to download this arbitrary precision floating point package uh, for <laughs> Python in order to even do the numerics, which kind of gives an indication of how extremely ill-conditioned things are and how extremely large is the discrepancy between what we call power in the com theory papers and what's actually power in the in the in the, in the physical world right so anyways um, 
I guess we could continue on that <laughs> topic for long, but uh, maybe yeah. we should also move on. And, you know, I mean, staying on this uh, now near field regime, right? Even like, let's talk about an individual antenna again. Mm. And, uh, you know, being in the in the near field or even in the, in the reactive near field, um, say, um, can that be useful? I mean, I suppose there are these contact or, or communication schemes that actually rely on coupling, right? Um, Indeed. This is one of the maybe most commonly used technologies today and uh, sometimes it's called NFC, standing for Near Field Communications. But more often we are just thinking about it as RF ID or radio frequency identification like the tags that you're using to open a door for example or maybe mm. you're using a metro card which you're just holding against a reader and then it's open up it's sort of the same type of technology there and and these things are based on the magnetic coupling that are happening in the reactive near field mm. with the reason that many of these tags can be completely passive so they contains the circuit you hold it close to something that is creating uh, a field and then you are uh, based on that field you are modulating it changing the load in an active manner to communicate signals back to the, the transmitter or sender there mm. so, you're, so you're actually you now located in the Closer than the radiative, I mean, well, in the reactive, say, uh, in the reactive near field. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, and you're actually exploiting the coupling, right, for communication. Exactly. So, and many of mm. these technologies are working in the megahertz, or hundreds of megahertz, or uh, maybe down to 100 kilohertz or something like that. So then the wavelength is. It's very long and uh, uh, (laughs) the intention is that this technology should only work over say up to four centimeters so that no one should be able to read your card from the other part Mm -hmm. of a a building or something Uh, so so from that perspective uh, uh, they are meant to only work over very Mm -hmm. short distances and yeah, yeah many mobile phones nowadays are also supporting this but more in an active mode that it can mimic how a nfc tag would work uh, so you, mm. if you store your visa card in your phone what it is essentially behaving as if it was the visa card that you have in your uh, your wallet but while the one in the wallet is a is a passive circuit the, <laughs> uh, the mobile phone is sort of synthesizing the same kind of things to communicate with the reader right so we should be glad that the uh, reactive near field doesn't extend too long then so somebody could snap or uh, snatch your <laughs> credit card number from from a longer distance uh, right yeah but but the, of, of course you can always put up a large re- receiver and be able to to measure things from a longer distance it's also in these kind of cases mm. and uh, i think uh, if you like me like to be part of like running competitions then often uh, nowadays you get a kind of reader that you either put on some number tag on your clothes or you put on your shoes and uh, then they have a big reader that is able to read like a tenth of people simultaneously who is just running through some kind of obstacle and uh, yeah the technology can handle many things you can big big receivers so that you can handle reading on many tags at the same time Mm, mm. yeah it's amazing Uh, wow so i guess we spoke about Antennas, and we spoke about the race of antennas, right? Communicating with like a mobile or something. And then mm-hmm. I guess mostly throughout here, the kind of starting point in, or at least a mental picture, I think we both had probably was that 
that mobile had a single antenna and, and that was it, right? But hmm. I also suppose that, especially now with like millimeter wave and terahertz and all that, both sides will be using larger arrays or arrays at least, right? Potentially larger arrays. And I mean, large here could mean like number of elements and at, at like very high carry frequencies, even a large array with many elements it doesn't have to be physically large, of course. So is there anything here among what we have said that would like change or um, would have to be like considered differently if we have mm. a race at both sides of the link? Yes, then you can do new interesting things as well. Or maybe they are not new, but they, you can use it in situations that you couldn't before. So uh, if we start from having a transmitter with just one small antenna uh, and then you have a large receiver, yeah, you, you see the sphericalness of the wavefront and mm. you could potentially also see the amplitude variations over the, the array. And while the amplitude variations are only depending on the distances, so it's re- true geometry, the phase variations that are sort of showing the curvature, those ones are wavelength dependent because moving mm. a certain distance means uh, much more of a phase shift at higher frequencies when the wavelength is smaller. Mm. And what does th- that then means is that uh, if you now have two antennas at your transmitter that are sufficiently far apart, you could essentially uh, observe the different curvatures from these two different receivers, uh, transmitters at your receiver side. Mm. And conventionally, when you have a line of sight communication system, no other paths, then if you use one polarization, you can send one stream of data at the same time, and you cannot tell anything else apart. Uh, if mm. you use dual polarization, you can tell two apart, uh, but then there are more, not more polarizations than that. Uh, but now when you also can utilize the spherical wavefronts, you can actually send multiple streams over the the same line of sight paths. You don't need to have any reflectors or anything that create additional paths. You can do MIMO communications with many streams or layers or whatever you want to call this uh, parallel signals over uh, this, as long as you are sort of in front, uh, closer than the Fraunhofer distances. It's, it's not, mm. this distance was sort of made up for a long time ago. So it's not precisely that metric we should utilize, mm. but uh, it sort of give an indication of that when you're closer than this, you can, you can see these benefits. Mm-hmm. So using like arrays on both sides of the link, um, even in line of to to do spatial multiplexing, even in line of sight conditions. Yeah, and one way of thinking of, of it also that the, the signal that comes from one or transmitter antennas now have a beam width uh, that is uh, uh, perceived to be small enough so that it sort of give these variations of the the array as well, and. Uh, mm. uh, yeah, when we are, are talking about MIMO communications over a point-to-point link, we often are using the singular value decomposition to determine mm. how we should transmit the different signals. That could describe, uh, for example, transmitting in different angular directions. But more generally here, it just describes mm. what we call eigenmodes, different ways of transmitting in order to create something that is uh, resolvable at the receiver side. And how it looks like in near field, that is something that a lot of people are doing research on. Right, and that 
also brings us back, I think, to this point of what is a beam, right? And yeah. incorporating like geometry <laughs> or, or relying on a geometric model and pretending that a beam is just a ray that you shoot into some particular direction in in space. Whereas really, uh, that's only true if you're if you're far enough away from from the array. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Um, yeah, it's an interesting topic. I think we have many more things that could be said. And um, there's one thing here I believe could be a good place to um, mm. address, namely um, a question that I was asked once some time ago by, by a colleague. And uh, the question relates to coherence of a channel. And then we have the notion of coherence time which, um, well, there are different conventions, but one convention I think we can agree on is that coherence time is the time it takes to move uh, half a wavelength um, um, Mm. for for a given carrier frequency, right? And then the question is now, suppose that we build an array, a uniform linear array, say, with, let's say, M, the mic, um, elements, and then we know that this array can focus um, power uh, in, uh, in in space, in, in, in beams. And we also know that the beam width in angle, uh, in terms of angle or in, in degrees or radians, say that beam width go, goes inversely proportional to the number of elements. So this is one, one over m. Um, and then the question is now, if we make this array larger and larger and larger, right? And what happens is that the beam will get sharper and sharper and sharper, so narrower mm-hmm. like this. So could it ever happen then that the beam becomes so narrow that we, during the course of a coherence time, would travel into the beam and then out of it again? Which seems to, I mean, if that were the case, right, it would like contradict the notion of coherence time because we are taught in the MIMO, um, <laughs> say, from the MIMO theory that it's enough to estimate the channel once every coherence time. But if this were true, that you could actually move into the beam and then out of it again in a time which is shorter than the ti- coherence time with the channel, then it would be impossible to estimate the channel with a periodicity or with a frequency of um, the, the coherence time and, and learn the channel accurately enough so we can actually form this beam. Mm. Um, maybe you want to answer it. <laughs> so there are several different aspects to this. One of them, which I, I think you also have in mind, is that uh, uh, yeah, the, the the angular beam wave is getting shorter and shorter. But then, mm. as you make the array larger, this uh, Fraunhofer distance or the point at which yes. you can start to see a beam when you are sel- sending your beam towards the far field that one is also moving further and further away. And that is contradicting the effect. So that (laughs) uh, once you see this beam, it will still not become so so sharp uh, in terms of the the length in wavelengths that it's happening. That's exactly the point, right? Mm. I mean, the beam width in in, uh, degrees or radians scales as 1 over m, m number of antennas. Whereas the distance you have to be away from the array to actually see anything that looks like a beam scales proportionally to m. So mm. 1 over m times m is equal to 1, right? Which means that in meters, the beam width is at that point going to be more or less uh, a constant and doesn't shrink. Yeah. Um, 
but then yeah. the other aspects <laughs> to this is also that you could, uh, if you focus your signal at a point that is in this uh, radiative near field, and then uh, I like to call it a finite depth beam. Uh, one can call it different things, whether it is a beam or not. But uh, uh, that one will actually also in radians have the same uh, beam width, which means that the, the actual length of the beam in the uh, width dimension will be rather small. Yet, uh, one can show that it can never be smaller than something that is proportional to the wavelength. Because at the end of the day, it's all a signal that come from different directions. They, sh they meet at one point and then they should start to move uh, and away from each other and create that the signal are not adding on top of each other anymore. And I think we, we made a computation in the paper that in the uh, absolute worst case, when you move the wavelength divided by eight, you will lose half of your power. And it can never be worse mm. than that. Uh, mm. So it mm. doesn't go to zero or anything. <laughs> mm. Yeah, so there'll be a lot of details here, which I think are more easily explained using uh, some visual aids, perhaps, and mm. mathematics. But uh, <laughs> uh, in any case, I think we did resolve the, I call it the coherence myth, um, mm. this fact that, um, well, the beam actually doesn't get narrower and narrower so that you can't move into it and out again in a time shorter than the uh, um, uh, channel coherence time. Um, so uh, returning maybe to, we talked earlier about using antenna arrays at both ends of a link hmm? to do spatial multiplexing, to transmit more than one data stream at the same time. Is that in any way related to OAM, uh, orbital angular momentum, which I know has been, people have looked at, I think, both from physics community and also comms theory community. Um, to me, they seem to be kind of the same thing, but do you want to elaborate a little bit on this? Yes, I think this is a example of this. So uh, now when you, you know that you are so close that you can resolve properties of waves that you are not seeing in the far field, then depending on what kind of array geometries you're selecting, these eigenmodes that I was alluding to are looking differently. And this is an example where you, at the transmitter and receiver, you have a, a circular arrays with an, discrete antennas around mm. them. And then you position them in a particular way and you are determining how does this eigenmode, the optimal way of transmitting, look like. And then it turns out that this is matching with something that we call orbital, uh, orbital angular momentum, and uh, which is some kind of twisted wavefronts. And mm. this is a physically beautiful interpretation of how the signals look like. Uh, but it's nothing different as far as I can understand from uh, how you would do uh, communication without such a physical model. If we sort of come back to the same thing. We can always measure the channel and uh, we can do MIMO theory on top of it and it will work out. This is more of a geometrical model of a very different kind of what happens. Mm, mm. Do you agree? Yeah, I, I think that's entirely right. I mean, so OAM is a particular instance of point-to-point -point MIMO where the arrays are located in the near field of um, one another and such mm. that you can transmit through spatial multiplexing more than one stream, right? And there's nothing here from a comm theory perspective which is exotic at all. In fact, I mean, you know, the channel between any pair of antennas here is line linear and time invariant and you measure it appropriately and then you apply the standard MIMO textbook formulas for beamforming or singular value decomposition or water filling, whatever, and, and, and that's it. Then obviously, one can 
with let's say an adequate background in, in physics illustrate what's going on using this notion of twisted waves and, and beams or, or lobes that are very colorful and, and nice shapes but there's nothing here that really can't be understood and explained by the conventional point-to-point MIMO theory. Now considering the fact that the two arrays are actually in the near field of one another, uh, in, in the array near field or geometric mm. near field, right? So the, the antenna elements are still in the, <laughs> not closer <laughs> to each other than the, the, that they are in the radiative field, so they don't couple too much, but, but, the, but the arrays are in the um, uh, geometric near field of one another. Yeah, and, and there is a lot of related kind of research going on also with people looking at arrays of different types, their different shapes, mm. and try to figure out uh, can we get a geometrical interpretation of how these eigenmodes should look like? Okay, if we're not sending angular beams in order mm. to reach each other, what should they uh, look like? And what will then be the reason for that? Well, not to improve capacity or anything like that. Maybe to uh, it's more about but if you like to make a design that is based on geometry, then mm. what geometry should you utilize? And that is what the research is, is more about. And yeah, yeah, if you do beam forming without uh, um, knowing the channel state information from the beginning, what dimension should you explore? Uh, this is mm. the only thing it's about. Mm. Right. Yeah, that sounds like an exciting direction of research. They could give a lot of insights, right? I mean, as you know, I'm very much in favor of using accurate physical models and also geometric models, obviously, and so forth. But again, as I think we talked earlier, it's difficult to really have a good physical model once you have like anything else than free space <laughs> line mm-hmm. of sight, right? I mean, you have objects here, even just objects, if you put this, you know, antennas in this room here, there are like countless of small things that will scatter the wave and we don't know where these are. And we will never have enough signal to noise ratio to accurately locate where each one of them is and compute or estimate the characteristics of each one of them. And mm-hmm. then at some point, I think we will have to transition to more like some kind of data-driven approach where we just learn what does the channel responses look like right now or as a function of you know the position in the room and so forth Indeed. all right um yeah i, yeah. I have maybe <laughs> one last thing to, to, to add to that and that would be that yeah when you are using this kind of data-driven approaches if you know something about the geometrical world, it could be good to try to feed it in from the beginning. And yeah, as you were saying, it would be very hard to know exactly where these objects are and everything, but it, it could still be that we could tell it that, uh, well, here are the different dimensions where the channel can exist. And then there mm. is typically a null space, uh, some dimensions that can't exist due to the area geometry. And if we feed them with that information as well, mm. well, th- that is helpful for learning. Certainly. And I mean, if we we could deduce where this null space is from geometric considerations that's obviously great right but i think my point was rather that probably in practice you, you could build algorithms to just learn where this null space is and where, what it looks like and how large it is and so forth i'm, I'm mm. just thinking back at like you know other problems in engineering computer science where we have tried to model extremely complicated like natural uh, uh, picture right i mean just a photograph or, or a shot in a video or something Mm. Um, and in, I guess in the rather early days of like computer vision, 
um, people who are like trying to model features, you recognize the face because the face is like a, maybe a circle or <laughs> some kind of elliptical shape, right? And you got the eyes or two circles and then try to figure out where they are and so forth or detect mm. that there are circles and so on. Well, that only worked at some point and what really turned out to work are these deep neural networks, right? That really make substantially no prior assumptions at all on, on what <laughs> the objects, no geometric assumptions at all on what the objects look mm. like, right? And, um, it's very possible, I think, that once we, if the, if the goal here is to resolve fine little details in the propagation environment and, and, and rely on these details for like positioning, for example, that the, the, the inspiration to get there might be from the computer vision world and, and, and using these neural networks to, to, to learn. Uh, but obviously, that said, I concur. Uh, I think you brought it up several times that, you know, if you know something about the geometry, obviously do exploit it, right? So, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right. So that I think covered very much, I believe, what we had like planned to cover. Yeah. Uh, it's been a great discussion, Emil, and um, a great deal of important matters here to consider and to learn um so i think we'll be wrapping up here for today indeed indeed <laughs> okay so thanks again <laughs> and thanks to our listeners and don't forget to log into youtube and like and subscribe us there so with that till next time bye 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 thank you